everybody. Welcome to The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about investing. I'm Jason Hall, joined by my good friend, Jeff Santoro, who we consider to be the voice of the people around these parts. Jeff, how are you and how are the people? I'm good. Uh, the people... The people are good as well. Um, I, I, as, I, as the representative of the people, the voice of the people, I can tell you the people are doing well. That's good. That's good. Looking at the market, they, they might be a little uncertain. They might be a little uncertain. but I haven't even looked yet. That's how busy I've been. It's getting smashed. Oof. I shouldn't have looked. So, it's August 26th. This is uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming's getting a lot of interest right now. Yes. Fed chief spoke at 10 a.m. Um, I don't know. Seems like depending on broad sentiment, he could say the exact same thing, and the market could go up two percent or down two percent. So, yeah, it doesn't. It's not predictable. We got a we got a good couple of questions. We're going to do a little mailbag here, Jeff. Uh, we got a question about bonds, and we got a question about building a stock position, building a position in your portfolio that we're going to answer. But before we do that, we got a little bit of little. Uh, got some- some housekeeping. Housekeeping, that's the word. Yeah. That's the word. So the people have found the podcast, but we want them to engage with us, right? We want to hear from our our listeners, get questions to us, tell us when we do stuff stupid and wrong. Um, How how do people get in touch with us, Jeff? Yeah, they can find us on Twitter at Smattering Show. They can find us on Gmail at thesmatteringshow at gmail.com. Either one is fine. We do want your feedback, good or bad, positive or negative. Um, and also the, the Twitter account is worth following because we will be posting questions and polls every couple of days throughout the history of this long running podcast, um, that will, uh, help us decide what we're going to talk about, but also keep you guys engaged with what we're thinking and what we're doing. So reach out, give us some feedback, rate the show in your podcast app. And that's all. One more thing. We, we have a YouTube channel too. Um, so if you follow the, follow us on Twitter, you'll get, the YouTube channel there. One of the things we're doing is we're taking the YouTube videos and, you know, a, a few days or a week after we publish the video, we're making them into podcast episodes. So you'll hear those here. The ones we're talking a lot more about stocks, individual stocks is, is coming from our YouTube channel. If you're interested in watching the videos, we're sharing charts and um, a little more engaging data there. Um, find our YouTube channel too, um, The Smattering. Um, again, you can find that on our, on our Twitter page. You can find that YouTube too. So, Jeff, with that said, let's, um, let's get right into this. Uh, first question uh, came from an avid listener, Kelly, right? Kelly, what was Kelly's question? Kelly, avid listener, she's listened to every episode. She listens in her car and makes her children listen. So she's really the ideal, the ideal fan of our podcast. And she asked us, what are I-bonds and how do they work and are they a good investment? Yeah, so the, the great question, right? Let's, let's start with the first one. What are I-bonds? I-bonds are a kind of bond that has gotten a ton of attention really since the beginning of the year because it's a bond that's easy to buy. It's a treasury, right? So it's, a, it's, it's easy to buy right on Treasury Direct, um, starting in amounts as small as $100 and as much as $10,000 per year that you can invest in these um, I-series savings bonds. And the reason, Jeff, they've gotten so much attention is because the rate, the interest rate through, if you buy between now and October of this year, is 9.62%. 
which is just absurd when you compare that to where you're getting what you're getting an interest rate everywhere else. Right. It it is absurd is the only way to describe it. This is 1980s level um, treasury yields, right? But that was like the 30 year was was giving you like double digit or close to double digits. So there's more to it though. There's more to it. You you buy it. You you get that nine point six two percent rate. That rate is based on two things. There's a fixed underlying rate that remains essentially the same for the for the entire time you own that I bond. And I believe I believe you can hold it up to thirty years. I'm pretty sure it's up to thirty years. Um, you can sell it. You can redeem it as short as only twelve months. If once you've held it for twelve months, you can redeem it. There's some penalties if you redeem it within five years um, that we'll talk about. But the other part of the interest rate formula um, adjusts up and down based on, based on some factors. So reading right here from treasurydirect.gov, the interest rate combines two separate things, a fixed rate of return, which remains the same throughout the life of the I-bond, and a variable semi-annual inflation rate, meaning it changes twice a year, based on changes in the CPIU, which is the Consumer Price Index for Urban Consumers. Um, the Bureau of the Fiscal Service announces the rates in May and November. So the um, May announcements based on uh, the CPIU from the preceding September and March. The November is based on the March and September, right? So that's so, so basically, you get a fixed rate that's guaranteed, and then you get an adjustable rate um, based on inflation, right? And that's how you get to a 9.62% um, yield currently, right? That's going to be good for six months before it, it adjusts. So again, just to recap, it's a treasury. You buy it from Treasury Direct. You're buying it directly from the U.S. Treasury. As little as $100.00. As much as $10,000 every year, you can buy as much as $10,000 more at an, individual, at an individual level. And you redeem it, you get full face value plus interest. After 12 months, if you sell between 13 months and uh, 60 months, so five years, you have to give back the last three months worth of interest. You don't, you don't get that. So that's the penalty. So it's a minor penalty. Does that answer all of your questions about what it is? Yeah, no, that's pretty clear. I think the big thing that you have to remember is you're, you're stuck with it for a year, no matter what, right? There's no way to get your money back within those first 12 months. It's going to re-rate every six months. So obviously if inflation keeps going up, you're going to get a better yield. And if it goes down, it's going to lower. Um, and then the, the, the penalty is the final three months before um, you, you withdraw it, but that can only happen after the 12 months. And after, and after five years, there is no penalty. So year six, seven, and beyond, you can get that money back with no penalty. So I think I, think I understand it. Let's answer the next question. Is it a good investment? Yeah. So this is the definitely maybe one, right? Um, and I think broadly, for most people, once you kind of check a few things off, like your financial accomplishment bucket list that you need to do first, I think I-bonds are really, really compelling. Not, and again, not just right now, but I think broadly they're, they're pretty compelling. Uh, and number one, do you have a reasonable amount of emergency savings? Right. right? Because again, once, once you've bought that, this, this, the I-bond, 
your money's locked in, in money jail for a year. You, you can't get it, right? So this is not a place to stick all of your savings, right? So let's say that first. That makes sense? Yeah. Next, um, once you've gotten like a reasonable amount of, 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 of that savings there, then you start thinking about your other financial goals. And there's the short-term emergency savings, right? The, the black swan, shit out of nowhere, you, gotta, you need the money now, you need it in a couple days, that's your emergency savings. And, and that, you just you sacrifice the best possible yield um, in access, right? It's there, you can get to it quickly. Right. It's like insurance. You got to think of it like a short, really short-term insurance plan. Well, and even more importantly, it's the stuff that insurance won't pay for, right? Right. <laughs> it's, the, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, the, it's the reinsurance, right? <laughs> so, well, I like to think of it as, well, the reason I say insurance is a lot of people get really hung up on the fact that, oh, this cash is making nothing in my check, in my savings account, 100%. right? I'm getting 0.03%, right? right. So right. that's why I frame it when I talk to people about it. You got to think of it like an insurance. You pay and you pay a fee to have insurance, right? right? This is at least you know you're getting a tiny bit back. To, but yeah, you need to have that short term cash ready. Yeah, it's in the tool. It's the toolkit, right? The the the, the purpose yep. of this tool that that cash savings is not to generate a large return. You know, get whatever best yield you can that the market's bearing, and the best instrument out there, whether it's a you know high yield savings or a money market or whatever it is, right? You, you figure that part out. That's the best you can get, but you just again the the, the tool you're trying to solve is the, it's the it's the fire extinguisher, right? It's the thing that's there when you need to put out a fire. All right, so we do that, and then think about your bigger goals, your longer term goals that you need to create significant amounts of wealth for: retiring, putting your kid through college. Uh, retiring early, right? Maybe one of your big goals is to be able to stop work 10 years earlier than most people do, right? And again, it's a long-term goal. The reality is that $10,000 a year into um, I-bonds is not going to get there, right? We're, we're in an interesting environment right now where inflation is very, very high. So that yield looks really good. It's like, wow, 9.6%, that's, and this is safe. It's guaranteed. Man, I'm just going to do that instead of investing in my 401k. There you go. Jeff's shaking his head right now. Jeff, why are you shaking your head? Yeah, I mean, it it's safe and secured, but but capped. I guess is the way I would look at it, yeah. right? Because there's still over the long, long term potential for, for potential for greater growth by investing in in the stock market. High floor, low ceiling, right? That's what this right. is. And I think it's the, it's the, it's a great in between, right? It's it's again, it's this is like the. Um, I don't know, the peanut butter and the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, right? Kind of holds it together. Um, you've got a great opportunity to get better yield for money that you're not necessarily going to need this year. You're not going to tie up capital because you're worried about volatility, which that's the risk of the stock market, and sacrifice long-term gains, right, by, by not owning stocks and um, REITs and other things like that that can generate consistently higher, higher yields. So let's say this particular instrument, inflation normalizes, and a couple of years from now we're back down to that like two percent rate or less. All of a sudden, this is going to be a below par way to generate return. 
Now, with that said, Jeff, one of the things I like about the I-bonds is because you can put money in it every year, and over time, that money comes out of the, the money jail, and you can get access to it, it can become a way where you can get a little bit better yield on money that you can get access to quickly. But real, realistically, it takes a couple years, maybe even up to five, if you want to avoid sacrificing any of the yield that you have coming to you to build up a ladder of owning it enough, long enough, right? That once you get past that five-year point, you have something that comes up. You don't want to sell stocks, right? You don't have as much. You want to leave that cash in savings. You say, okay, I, I can cash out a couple thousand dollars of I-bonds to, you know, you know, pay for that car repair or whatever, right? Whatever it might be. Buy those new golf clubs that my wife says right. that I shouldn't take the money out of savings to buy, right? Yeah. So like the bottom line is I love the, I was going to ask you about how you thought about the whole laddering thing. So laddering is basically, you can do it with CDs, you can do it with bonds where you buy X amount of dollars each year, each, each six months, whatever that you're doing. And then when that corresponding period then ends, you sort of have rolling amounts of money that become back available to you with the interest that you gained. So let's say you bought $10,000 worth of I bonds right now, and you're good not needing that money for five years, and you do the same thing every year. So today is August 26. So every 20, every August 26, you buy $10,000 worth of I bonds. Five years from now, that first tranche of money is going to come back to you with no penalties, right? And you'll have that interest. And then you could theoretically, every year on August 26th, get a chunk of change that sort of is back to you penalty-free with interest that you could then decide to, like you said, buy golf clubs, reinvest, whatever. So if you have the excess capital beyond your emergency savings, beyond saving for the long, long term, it's a viable option for that intermediary, intermediate time frame to get a little bit of secured uh, interest. Yeah, 100%. And, and the thing is that you were using a year is just kind of an arbitrary example. You could do it quarterly, you could do it monthly, right? Where you're getting those those maturities are happening. It's not a maturity, right? Because I think you can invest in I-bonds. I'm pretty sure it's 30 years is the max. But the point is, once you get past that five-year point, you have the ability to pull it out and get all of your principal and all of the interest that, that's owed. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's reasonable. Um, and I think they fit. It's a, it's a great tool that fits. And Jeff, I will tell you, I'm going to be buying I-bonds um, next week. So, yeah, I think they're useful. Yeah, I think so too. Um, one use that I've been considering them for is when I was a kid, I would get savings bonds a lot for birthdays and Christmas from my grandparents and stuff. And they're all matured at this point, or a lot of them are from when I was younger. Um, so I've thought about what to do with that money now, right? And since I haven't ever banked on it being there, right, I didn't need them, I didn't need to cash them in, I might just roll them into I-bonds and sort of, you know, do this laddering thing that we just talked about. So that's one use case if anyone's in that situation to consider as well. You're not going to buy, say, Tesla or Robinhood or some stock like that with it? I mean, you could. No, those are two stocks I will not be buying. Okay. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's take our next question here. And this one I think we can answer relatively quickly from Colin, who's also um, a regular, follows us, and has given us a couple of great questions and some ideas Colin's asking, how do you guys approach building a new position? How do you si decide the position size? So Jeff, Colin's talking about our stock portfolios here. 
and picking a stock and we're going to buy it and invest in it and the position, the size of that holding is what he's talking about here. How about you? Let's, let's hear from you first on this. All right. So I'm glad you asked this question, Colin, because being newer to individual stock investing, this is something that I have not yet sort of figured out. And I don't know that I ever will, because I think it's one of those things that I think you're going to talk about this too, Jason, like frameworks rather than hard rules might be the better way to go here. But I'll tell you quickly what I, what I, what I'm doing right now. So right now I'm, I want to get to a point where my core stock portfolio, meaning the stocks that I think of as my high growth, not my, I have a separate sort of kind of bucket where I have some, some, um, slower growers, but better, you know, dividends and things like that, that I'm thinking of as like, um, a way to pay off my mortgage a little sooner. Less likely to lose money, but maybe not the same kind of upside. Correct. Right. Exactly. But I have what I call like my core stock portfolio. It's I think around 25 stocks. I want to get to a point where all of those are at least 1% of my overall portfolio. And that means all of my and my wife's, our total retirement portfolio, right? Everything together. So your 401ks, your Roths, your rollovers, taxable, any other instrument you're using that is your, that represent your equity and portfolio, right? All of, all of those assets and not including your kids' college savings or your home equity in your house or any of that stuff, just a percentage of the value of your stock portfolios. Yes. Okay. So my goal is to get those 25 up to at least 1%. And then I want to kind of feel like, see how I am there. And then maybe think about do I want them to be 2% or 3%? At some point, though, I do like the idea of not hard capping, but saying to yourself, all right, I'm not going to put any more into this. And just any f- future growth I want to be because of the stock appreciating. Right. I've done my now, part I've, company. It's time for you to do your part. Right. And I've asked other people about this. Some people, a lot of people do something similar where they only put in X amount of X percent to any one company and they let the market do the rest. Some people base that percentage on the value of the portfolio, like the current market value. Some people do it based on cost basis, meaning what you've put in. I like thinking of it as cost basis just because it's a little bit more stable, I guess. It doesn't change as much. Um, But that's sort of just where I am right now. Like that is not my, I'm not set on that. I kind of, I want to grow in, I want my portfolio of individual stocks to grow to a point where I really have to kind of think about it. you know, but I don't think I'm going to see any one stock like shoot up to be 10% of my overall portfolio for a long time, <laughs> just because I'm newer to it. Um, and I'm slowly adding to a bunch of different stocks. Like I didn't, you know, I'm not buying like, you know, a half a percent of my portfolio at a time or anything like that. I'm putting like much smaller chunks in over the course of a year and two years and three years. So that's where I am right now. But Jason, you've been doing this a lot longer than I have. So I'm really curious. And you have an enormously huge portfolio of like 120 stocks. So I'm really curious what your kind of framework is around huge, this. Huge, huge tracts of land. Huge. <laughs> I, I, so yeah, so that's the, you know, context there. Yeah, it's, you know, I own around 120 individual stocks. Um, no bonds, have some cash, going to be adding some I-bonds, like I said. Um, I'm not going to be considering those I-bonds to be part of the portfolio, though. I'm going to be considering them part of the, the savings non-investable savings, right, over time, just a little bit longer-term savings. So how do I go about um, building out a portfolio, building out a position? Um, Number one, I agree 100%, Jeff, that I think generally frameworks are better than 
hard and fast rules. Um, and the reason why is, again, we've talked about this before. It's one thing if you're like our friend um, um, Brian Withers, Brian's semi-retired. He's, you know, works a little bit, does some stuff for the fool, um, does some other other things to earn a little bit of money. But he's not contributing to his retirement accounts. He's not contributing savings. He's, he's drawing, still kind of drawing down, right? So that's a situation where you may, you still start with a framework, but you have maybe a little more kind of hard and fast guidelines about percentages of, of what you're going to own because your portfolio is what it is, right? At that point, the, 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 the amount of capital you have to work with is, is there. Um, I'm still at least a decade away, uh, barring some enormous financial windfall or success. Um, I'm still at least a decade away, probably 15 plus years from being to the point where I'm no longer going to be contributing to retirement, right? So number one, that means that I need to operate in percentages versus round numbers um, versus whole numbers. Um, because you know, those numbers are constantly changing, right? So I need to be kind of mindful of that. And when it comes to building out a position, again, I, I agree very much. It's far more about percentage of cost basis, the dollars, the capital dollars that I have put into the portfolio than the percentage of my total portfolio, right? Because my job is to the cost basis to invest the cost basis it's management's job to deliver on the business to grow the value of my portfolio, the percentage of my portfolio, right? So understanding what your role and what you can control, I think, is really, really important. And for me, again, because I tend to um, be far more open to adding a new company to my portfolio, um, and just like everybody else, I have a limited amount of capital that I'm putting in. The amount that I can invest in a starting position is typically pretty small. And if it's, if I'm thinking about it like a scout team position, right, this is a company, it's thinking about like the scout team in professional football, right? These are the guys that they've got some skills, they have a role, but they're not quite there yet to be on the NFL roster. Um, I think a little bit about like that with some companies, like I see something there, there's some potential. I want her to be part of my team, but you're, you're not, you know, you're not even sitting on the bench on Sundays, much less being one of the starters. And I start with a pretty small position, like a quarter of a percent, really, really small. And for me, there's a little bit of an emotional trigger behind the reason that I do that because skin in the game is big for me. I have a watch list of stocks that I don't own. But that watch list of stocks that I don't own versus the ones that I have even that small quarter percent of my portfolio invested in, I'll let you guess which ones I pay more attention to, right? And the ones that I own, I pay a lot more attention to. And what I tend to do is I start with that small position, and then I give it a couple quarters, um, a year, sometimes longer, for things to play out, right? Um, Because at the end of the day, again, we... In the short term, it's just a bunch of noise moving stock prices. And you get a couple quarters of results for a company, and it's incremental knowledge and, and tells you a little bit, but it doesn't tell you a whole lot about I mean, look at Peloton, right? That's an example. Was blowing up, you know, during the pandemic. It was they couldn't make enough bikes. Um, they couldn't do it. They, they there was I mean, they even bought another a manufacturer to do that. Procore, I think was the name of the company they bought. So anyway, they bought I mean 
And look at it today. They just reported a 30% decline in sales this week, right? So a company will lie to you in a couple of quarters, but over multiple years, you have a little more evidence about whether the story is really, really playing out. And by starting small, if it was a dumb investment, you know, I sacrificed a quarter percent, right? And at some point down the road, maybe I sell and recoup a little bit. If things go great, okay, I, I didn't invest more, but I learned a lot and I've made some money. And if it's a small company with a big addressable market, you don't have to just buy one time and get it perfect. You buy a little bit more. You buy a little bit more. We talked about Mercado Libre on one of the first videos that we did. Um, I think it was the prior episode on the podcast. If you haven't heard that, folks, check it out. I first bought in 2014 and I think earned 12 bagger returns. I bought for less than $80 a share, right around $80 a share. I bought shares for $1,000 a share in the past year. A wonderful business that has a large addressable market, you can buy multiple times for years and years at a time. Getting on the, on the, on the bigger end of, of kind of where I cap things on a cost basis, if I have a lot of conviction in a company, I'll buy up to 2% of my, of my um, cost basis. I have a few that are above 2%. Um, 3% is kind of a hard stop for me. Um, and then on the other side of the equation, that's building the position. Um, let's talk on a future episode, Jeff, about what do we do when a position gets too big? I think that'd be a good show. Yeah, that's a good question. I did want to ask one thing, cause like, this is one of the things I think about what decision I'll make once I get to that point of having to decide what percentage is where I stop. So I wanted to get your thoughts, like what pushes a position past 2% for you? Because in my mind, thinking about like where I might be, it could be that, okay, I've I've bought 2% of my cost basis into this company, but we go through a big market, um, you know, down downturn, or there's some short-term headwinds for the company. And now all of a sudden, it's really attractive on a valuation basis and the shares look, you know, like too cheap to ignore, that might be a, a case where I'd say, you know what, 2% is not a hard cap. Let me buy a little more. Is that what pushes it for you or is it some other reason? It's conviction. It really boils down to conviction if I was going to put it in a word. Um, and typically at that point, it's a company that I've been following for years. I know very, very well. I observe a very large addressable market and trends that are going to make that lar- market larger. And I see a company that is in a, just a wonderful position to profit and to grow its cash flows because of that trend, then that's, that's, that's what I'll go above that 2% threshold. And I'll say there's not very many in my portfolio. As large as my portfolio is, it's concentrated into my top 20, 25 holdings. And I've only got two or three that I have more than 2% of my portfolio invested in. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good place to leave it, I think. Yeah, Jeff, this was, this was fun. Um, Friends, get, get your questions into us. We'd like to win these mailbags about once a month when we can. So get them into us, and um, we will ask your questions, and we'll make some attempt to answer them. But, of course, as much as we're here to ask the important questions, Jeff, anybody that's listening to us two idiots up here, they need to answer those questions for themselves, right? That's right. That's right. Nothing we said here is investing advice. Make your own decisions, people. You can do it. We'll see you next time. See you next time. See you next time.